everyone to the second episode of the Saturday Bookshelf. We are an hour-long live web series providing interactive conversations with authors from across the global left. Once a month, we explore different long-running political discussions and engage new works contributing to the field. We are also a production of the Shelter and Solidarity Collective based on the East Coast of the United States. Before we start, I'd like to remind everyone to keep their mics muted when not speaking. We'll begin taking audience questions at about the 30 minute mark. So as the time approaches, please indicate in the chat box if you have a question. My name is Kira Mudliar and I'm really excited to be one of your co-hosts today. Reading the book, I quickly realized this text this was a text I was going to keep reading and coming back to as it provides the concepts necessary to disentangle issues of post-coloniality and navigate the charges of race or class reductionism on the left. Joining me as a co-host is Paula Rahala, a PhD candidate at the, the University of Tampere and an assistant editor of Marx, Engels and Marxisms from Palgrave. How are you doing today, Paula? Thank you, Kira. Thank you for a kind introduction and thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here and to meet uh, colleagues from different continents. Um, today we are honored to speak with Dr. Ranabir Samatar, a distinguished chair uh, in migration and forest migration studies at the Calcutta Research Group. And we talk about Dr. Samatar's book, Karl Marx and the Post-Colonial Age, that was published in our series, Marx, Engels and Marxisms, by Palgrave Macmillan in 2017. Uh, how are you doing, Dr. Samatar? Uh, professor, you're muted. Uh, yes, in these trying times, managing, managing. Yes, um, uh, we would like to discuss with you half an hour about your book and then after that we'll have uh, questions from the audience and our first question would be that what is the historical context for this book and why do you think that it was important to write it today? Uh, the historical context is of course a very particular one and a general one also. The general one is, uh, you know, it is understandable uh, that uh, given the kind of uh, uh, attention that was being uh, focused on Marx after 2008, and also uh, the anniversaries of Marx's birthday, uh, Capitals publication, etc., etc. So, I thought that you know, uh, perhaps the time has come to visit the how do you put it? The question of Marx in the post-colonial context. Uh, but there was also the two other motivations, you might say, insidious in some ways that the way the idea of the post-colonial has gained currency in the last, let's say, three decades, uh, at times seemed to me to be at odds with, uh, you know, the reception of Marx 
by the left movements or the communist movements in the 60s, 70s, uh, up to 60s and 70s, maybe early 80s of the last century. So, writing in Calcutta and writing from Calcutta, uh, there was this, uh, you know, it was, you may say, therefore, a clarificatory exercise, a clarifying exercise in terms of how does one, uh, you know, uh, visit Marx, read his writings from a post-colonial point of view. And on the other hand, uh, if you were a Marxist, uh, how do you look at the question of post-colonial existence? So there was this double imperatives And I think I touched on that in the, in the preface that I wrote to the book, where I referred to the debate between the subaltern studies scholars and, uh, you know, uh, other scholars who disputed the views of the subaltern studies. And uh, I wanted to strike a different path and not taking, you know, necessarily one of the sides. So these were all, there were different motivations. But as I said, uh, the main purpose was also to clarify, clarify to myself, clarify to others uh, as to where does the question of Marx stand in a post-colonial perspective and what does it mean when you were a Marxist to and this for me and I will end here for the timing and this for me was crucial and still crucial because I do think that the global age in some way is a post-colonial age it's not something only special to the ex-colonial countries and when I grew up and became a communist uh, I wasn't familiar with the term post-colonial. It gained currency much later. And in those days, if you look into the, reread the communist literature of the Marxist literature of 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, the idea was ex-colonial, neo-colonial, etc. And I'm not saying those were uh, the correct terms and this is an incorrect one, but clearly they are different gestures. So, uh, therefore, this exercise has a global relevance. And uh, one has to see how neoliberalism as a global order and the post-colonial condition of existence uh, as a specific form of political, economic, or social existence, uh, how do they uh, interact? Uh, what's the relation between neoliberalism and post-colonialism? I think this is very important, and I thought that this was being completely overlooked by quote-unquote post-colonial scholars.
this is a very rich book and it's a thick book and discusses many themes but for me uh, one of the most interesting themes is the discussion of migration and from the Marxist perspective uh, migration is of course about the movement of labor force or labor power and it's not just movement of individuals um, why do you think that this perspective is important uh, this is i think an important question uh, because at one level you may say that and there are studies of industrial capitalism which deal with the issue of labor migration and uh, there are again studies of formation of class structure in Europe uh, through immigrant labor. I'm reminded of Stephen Castle's very famous book, uh, Immigrant Labor and Class Structure in Europe, published probably in early 70s uh, by the Institute of Race Relations. London. But these were always thought to be a question of labor mobility. And this is where I thought that this was one of the, you may say, uh, uh, grounds where I thought that one has to push the post-colonial understanding, uh, you know, to the fore. Uh, for very briefly, that if you look at the formation of proletariat itself, I'm thinking of, uh, which I discuss elsewhere in my book on the post-colonial age of migration, where, for example, Chinese labor, uh, crucial in, uh, in you know, uh, making the railway lines uh, in United States or in Canada. Uh, the way in which uh, Irish labor was brought into the United States or the way in which, let us say, uh, uh, Hispanic labor, or you can think of the entire plantation industry. 19th century capitalism, you cannot understand without taking into account massive migration. Now, mobility is not a very good word. I mean, I understand that we need the word, but at the same time, the word mobility is effaces, it erases all the fault lines that are there in this history of migration, uh, national histories, race histories, gender histories, religious histories, uh, think of, uh, and, and that's where I thought that Marx's writings on primitive accumulation, we require to revisit it again and again. Personally, I have done it, and each time I have read it, and I must admit that I do not read it from end to end, you know, the several chapters dealing with primitive accumulation, but for anything that I suddenly remember that, oh, Marx had said this, let me read. And again, I find something new which had escaped my 
you know, attention. So the way Marx actually places migration in his account of primitive accumulation is something that had, it was one of the things that struck me, it remained in my mind. And when I started writing, uh, one of the purposes, apart from two, three other things, was that without an understanding of the colonial and the post-colonial time, the formation of working class globally is only half understood, which is true of today also. So that's why you will see that in the, in the chapter that deals with the formation of labor, I write at length with the turn in the logistical sector, the logistical orientation in global capitalist uh, uh, economy and the way new forms of labor uh, originate or orient or are oriented uh, according to the logistical turn. And again, you have the question of migration built in the question of class. So, uh, you know, so I, what I did was therefore, this is again, one of the examples of, uh, I did not therefore want to go into my correct understanding of post-colonialism or why should we use the word? And I, I think I wrote in probably in the first or in the second chapter and uh, immediately after discussing Vivek Chibber and, and the subaltern studies, the world of the dispute with that, that, you know, post-colonialism is a word, it's like commodity. You can't drop it, you can't eat it, you can't keep it away. You have to take it up yet as Marx cautions that there is a fetish around the whole thing and you have to break through the enigma around it and try to get to the bottom of it. Not that you go to the, into, you, are, you succeed in getting to the bottom of it because it will be always there as long as you uh, analyze or keep on understanding capitalism, you can't do away with commodity. Yet if you equate commodity with capitalism, then you are in the wrong path. Similarly, uh, the idea of post-colonialism is, and again, migration is one of the things, but there are several other things where uh, you have to take all these into account to understand why I argued that the post-colonial question is not a regional question, but it's a global question. Thank you, Professor. Getting at that question of the global, as, as you just brought up, we know that India is the leading vaccine producer on the planet, but we're still seeing record COVID cases across the country um, each day as, as the second wave of the pandemic is, is hitting hard. Um, how can we understand this current crisis with the global pandemic and the unequal distribution of vaccines across the planet as an expression or, or expression of post-colonial capitalism and uh, the neoliberal management? of it uh, again it's 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 a very insightful you know kind of uh, it prods us into thinking of what i wanted to say that you cannot uh, understand the uh, nature of post-colonial capitalism unless you put it in the neoliberal perspective because uh, apparently india is the largest vaccine maker 
And uh, till the other day, I actually attended uh, one session, maybe 15 days ago, which was speaking of vaccine nationalism. Now, it seems such a bizarre word if you think of India, uh, because the Serum Institute, which is one of the probably the largest vaccine manufacturer, cannot claim that that the Indian market uh, is not enough for the vaccines, the number of vaccines that it produces. In fact, it's short. On the other hand, it will not produce unless the government doles out money for the Serum Institute. Meanwhile, the Serum Institute will insist on advanced booking. So rich nations book early, even though uh, the Serum Institute has defaulted on that account also and is facing several lawsuits. So there is nothing called a clean capital. I mean, we can always, uh, you know, have a kind of a clean capitalism as an idea uh, in the sense that it is something pure in order to understand the phenomenon exactly as Marx said. But on the other hand, when you come down to the question of politics, to the question of contemporary history, the question of how class troubles arise, etc., etc., you can see how the state, how crony uh, capitalism, how, you know, uh, all these things, uh, you know, uh, uh, interact with each other. And I think uh, you, at one level, you may say that why wasn't uh, vaccine regarded as the public good, as a common good. But this is a very, if you, uh, if you allow me to use a harsh word, this is a very naive liberal idea of public goods, common goods. I mean, these are good words, so I have no complaint. I mean, it's very good. If and WHO is never tired of even repeating that vaccine is a common good. It is trying to make it. But on the other hand, wherever you see that vaccines have vaccines, and for that matter, other. Uh, goods or provisions of protection. Wherever they have been uh, made accessible to large number of people, you can see that it requires what you may call and what I have been using uh, a strong public power and a public power of a different type, a public power that uh, values care and protection as probably the most fundamental obligations uh, towards the society uh, and the people whose loyalty uh, it depends on uh, to maintain its public nature. So I don't want to go into that because that will take me completely, not completely to an allied direction, but probably not straight into it. But clearly, uh, the post-colonial condition, which amplifies the way in which uh, Negotiations in money market, in credit market, uh, the whole credit and date game, uh, the uh, the uh, extraction of all the 
um, concessions that the bourgeoisie can uh, can uh, can get from the state uh, it's the same thing happened in 2008 when the state had to bail out big banks everywhere and the money was public money uh, is the same thing in india where again the state would have to dish out huge amount of money so that the serum institute can can uh, continue with doing whatever it wants to do so i think this idea of a public good laudable as it is uh, faces this harsh reality of neoliberal capitalism whose evils are exacerbated by what you will roughly call the post colonial condition where supposedly capitalism is not working cleanly but know that it works cleanly all right so just as a last question one of the strengths of your book is to is to develop marxism as a growing and dynamic canon thinking revolutionary or engaging different revolutionary thinkers like Lenin or Mao as advancing our understanding of what you call the post-colonial condition. What should we be, well, how does this really help us understand and activate in this moment um, that feels like an ongoing crisis? Is there anything particularly useful from these thinkers we should be um, taking away very actively right now? when i wrote the book of course i didn't have uh, you know the epidemic in mind i had the environmental question in mind but not the epidemic and i read up and learned a lot uh, later on uh, but on the other hand uh, the reason when i even proposed the book to the editors i was very clear that that the ideas of marx are as I think a permanent workshop of ideas. So, and I'm not, uh, I'm not cut out for textual exegesis also. So fine reading of text, text interpretations, uh, this is something, uh, you know, uh, I'm not suited for that. I don't like that also. I find beyond the point, uh, it just doesn't make sense. On the other hand, as uh, you know, a political person, it's important to see how these ideas are received by people, how these ideas are, uh, you know, taken up and then uh, uh, practiced by uh, you know, activists, militants, uh, intellectuals, thinkers, but basically those who are in politics, those who want to engage in various ways uh, in the social task of transforming society. So that is where I thought that, that there are two problems. One is that typically Marx ends with Marx or Marx ends with um, roughly what you may call Western Marxism. So you have uh, Perry Anderson's very famous book, Considerations on Western Marxism. You will have uh, Later on, situation became a little better. So you have understanding of Marxism from race, etc. But again, mostly from North American, you know, uh, you know, location. Or you have in the countries of particularly Africa and Asia, but certainly more from Africa, 
where Marx is derided as someone Eurocentric, etc. And that is where, again, I thought that here is something where uh, we must break the, you know, the kind of uh, stalemate in thinking that you find. And one of the questions, therefore, for me was to reread Lenin in many ways. And, and actually, if you allow me a little more time, I should go into something that I wish uh, people had read probably more attentively because uh, one part of the book is less uh, discussed, at least when they approach, when they discuss it with me, but the other part is, but that's different. And in Mao, again, I thought that if you read Marx, I'm just to very briefly, uh, with Sandro Mezadra, I uh, wrote an article in something that Marcello Musto published, edited, I think 200 years of Marx or Marx at 200, I've forgotten the name of the book published by the, I think from by Cambridge University Press. So where, uh, and when I did the Bengali writing, I wrote it at length that how Marx and Engels had to struggle uh, in coping with the peasant question. So is the peasant someone who is a self-producer? Is the peasant someone who is a farm laborer? Is the peasant someone who is partly a farm laborer and partly, you know, a, a self-cultivating uh, economic agent? Uh, and is the peasant something which was there in the 19th century or 18th century Germany, but now in, in Engels' time in Russia, etc.? And you can see Marx and Engels struggling with the whole question of peasants. Some, at some point, they, they in fact say that they are rural proletariat. But it is only when you reach Mao Zedong, and Mao writes, Mao's very famous writing, you know, the, the analysis of uh, classes in China. And probably the first time you find that someone engaging very systematically on how do you analyze a peasant society. So I could go on, a great thing would be again on the whole question of populism, uh, how Marx, you know, in a way started rethinking on some of the questions when he corresponded with the Russian populist, uh, being the foremost thinker, and was very therefore cautious in suggesting that the things that he had argued in capital may not be applicable in Russia. So, uh, all in all, I am saying that forms of labor are very important, and that is where uh, a post-colonial, uh, you know, uh, sense of history of economy actually uh, opens your eyes to some of the hesitations that Marx had, some of the formulations that he did, the way he revised, and some of the, you know, very how would you put it, hundred years probably earlier, he was forcing certain things. But all these you can understand when you don't take Marx's text only by itself, not as a standalone thing, but as something which has been continuously worked and reworked by Marxists after Marx. So Marx was, as I said, only the first Marxist, but we don't stop at Marx. Thank you, Professor. I really appreciated the um the workshop of ideas that you brought up as, as this way to engage. 
Well, now we're we're opening up to audience Q and A, and um, th and uh, I'd just like to throw it to uh, Joe Ramsey, one of the um, the host of our our sibling show, Shelter and Solidarity, which airs on Thursdays. Um, Joe, if you'd like to pose your question. Yeah, thank you so much, Kira, and 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 thank you to the professor um, for for this um, this book and. Uh, for sharing some sense of it today. I was a little bit late um, to the discussion today, so pardon me if my question is in any way asking you to be redundant, but sometimes I guess being redundant on the essence isn't, isn't the worst thing in the world either. Um, so I think like perhaps a number of other folks, I know M MJ who's in the chat box has indicated a similar interest. You know, one of my interest in the dis this discussion today comes out in part of my uh, reading of Vivek Chibber's book, Post-Colonial Theory and the Specter of Capital, which then, of course, engages with a number of key thinkers and key arguments associated with subaltern studies, folks that I read back in grad school, but admittedly, you know, I have, uh, and, and at the time found quite compelling, but I have to say I found Vivek Chibber's critique of at least some of the foundational kind of arguments of subaltern studies to be very convincing. I was just looking through my copy to find like a, a chunk that maybe I could share with those who aren't familiar. Uh, and there's so much in this book, but I'll just isolate one sentence uh, which might stand in for the broader argument. Uh, and then I want to just ask kind of like, what is your critique of Chibber or perhaps more broadly critique of the limits or problems with the kind of debate that so many people, at least in the United States, in the academy and various activist circles, you know, have have uh, have been privy to in terms of Chibber and, and, uh, and uh, subaltern studies. So this is just, I mean, again, one almost at random, one of the many lines in this book that I marked. Uh, and, and he says in the start of his conclusion uh, of this book, analytically, perhaps the core thesis of post-colonial studies is that a deep structural chasm separates East and West. This is page 284 for those who are you know, following along. Um, so much, a deep ch structural chasm separates East and West, so much so that it undermines any framework claiming universal ap applicability. And of course, you know, Chibber develops a number of arguments or, you know, uh, responses to arguments in subaltern studies that make that argument for kind of some kind of unbridgeable gap or some kind of fundamental difference. So I guess my, I mean, it's kind of a two-part question, I guess. Uh, one, you know, what is your, in short, if you could boil it down for, for those of us who haven't read the book, your kind of critique of, of Chibber and of perhaps of the debate that he's been a prominent part of. And then perhaps as the follow-up question to, to, to not lock you into that, that debate exclusively. Um, how do you how do you respond to this idea of a kind of fundamental difference between kind of East and West uh, in terms of how we understand kind of the development of capitalism? Uh, I know that's a that's a huge question. That's probably kind of a question you need a book to answer. But I would love to hear like if you could just highlight maybe a few sharp points for us. I would be I would be very grateful. Thank you. You know, uh, in the in the preface, I commented on the, uh, in fact, I begin the book by reflecting on the, the debate uh, very briefly. And I shall answer briefly because uh, as I confessed in the beginning that uh, I was dismayed at the way in which the debate had been conducted. Uh, and I can speak now in, you know, less formal manner. But I, I ask, what do you gain by proving or trying to prove 
that capitalism is everywhere the same. I know Vivek Chibra didn't want to say that, but I'm saying roughly saying, you don't gain much. Uh, you don't gain much uh, uh, precisely because uh, the challenge is not whether there is capitalism. The challenge is not whether the bourgeoisie came of age and conquered the world. But the challenge is that when you do politics in your own country, when you try to engage in transformative exercises at an intellectual level, political level, etc., etc., then you deal with the concrete circumstance. And therefore, uh, a very old Marxist phrase, concrete analysis of a concrete situation is becoming it's important. So I do not think, I mean, if you ask me, I, in part, I, 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 I read the book uh, and I reread it when I had to, when I was writing my book. So in part, obviously, there is nothing objectionable. It is understandable what he writes. But at the end of it, I was thinking, to what end uh, these pages are written? Uh, you want to say that colonialism and capitalism, they are the same thing? Or do you want to say that capitalism, that colonialism does not form a kind of a special history without understanding that you can't make any sense of capitalism? But if you do understand that, that's why I brought in the question of Lenin, because uh, also on, on colonialism, let's say Marx's entire debate around, uh, you know, the whole evolution of his ideas on Ireland. And at one point, then Marx says that it is the Irish question. Unless we get a grip on the Irish question, we will not be able to understand what, how the English Revolution will evolve. So there are fascinating kind of turn of thinking, even in Marx's time, but certainly much later on, when you find that if you put aside colonialism and think of capitalism as a system of economy, etc., etc., you have understood nothing. Because unless you put colonialism at the heart of the entire question of accumulation, and therefore the entire, you know, rethinking about primitive accumulation, the way it speaks of the unequal geographies, the way it speaks of the way in which accumulation, and, and is it a mere historical question? Is it a question that is limited to antiquity? Or is it something that continues still today? And in my book, I argue that actually primitive accumulation is not something which you can relegate to history. That each time capitalism actually renews its operation, there is always something, and you know, Rosa Luxemburg and others, they try to address the question. But I, all I'm saying is that Vivid Chibber was simplistic. He underestimated, uh, you know, the purpose uh, behind subaltern studies, uh, you know, way of doing. But this is not to say that I thought subaltern studies were, you know, after a point that they were making. Because there you were right. How much do you gain if you continuously say, well, there was difference, difference, and difference? Because Marxism is neither the Bible of differences nor a Bible of generalism. It's something much, much more. It's not something which you can reduce uh, to a debate between a general question and let us say those who say, no, there is nothing called general, but within the general, there are differences. But these are only truisms. Marxism is much more enriched, much more complicated, and uh, it requires a different way. It, 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 you can't reduce it to two stereotypes. You do injustice, thereby to a body of revolutionary ideas. 
we are dealing with ideas of revolution, ideas of transformation. And these are scholastic debates. Frankly, I, I, I thought that beyond the point, they don't move. Thank you very much. That was helpful. Yeah. So I just want to clarify. So you're not disagreeing with Chibber on theory, but about and about the politic of how we should engage with subaltern studies? I wouldn't put it that way because for me, the theory is a part of, you know, how you deal with politics, how you want to transform. And that's why, you know, let me again quote Mao, therefore. Mao Zedong, in fact, in one of his early writings, says that what is Marxism and why are we engaged in Chinese revolution? And then this famous saying, uh, which has been, you know, quoted millions of times by revolutions everywhere, that Marxism is our arrow and Chinese revolution is the goal. That's the target. Now, therefore, your arrow and your goal, the, 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 again, let me go back to the Russian question in late Marx thinking. When Marx actually doesn't publish, doesn't work anymore on the volume three of capital, Marx actually has to rework. Marx engages in a lengthy correspondence spanning over several years with the Russian populists who were again debating within themselves where their ideas lie or, or, or should they expect that capitalism has to arrive and then they will go. And then Marx had to admit in a half way that no, while it is true that many of the characteristics of capitalism are quickly take, taking roots in Russia, but at the same time, he cannot rule out that one doesn't have to necessarily pass through the capitalist transition in order to uh, do a revolution. And in fact, uh, in the late years, he was so much appreciative of the Russian populist struggle against the Tsar. And if you take Lenin again, it, for me, absolutely a fascinating political career. Lenin begins his political career by fighting against the populists. So his famous, you know, article, who the friends of the people are, who are friends and who this. But by 1980, 1908, he actually tells his comrades, those who are in the country and he's outside, go and attend the present conferences of the populists. Tell them that we are not against the present cause, etc., etc. So what is theory then, if the theory is not, you know, all these things together? So, therefore, that's why I'm saying that, that Chibber's approach in crystallizing different theoretical, political discussions to a set of generalizations, it defeats parts. That's not the way to do. All right, thank you. Um, I'd like to get our next uh, person from the uh, audience in, uh, Fatu, if you wanna ask a question. Hi, thanks. I, I just have a question. Um, how should we engage in transforming the post-colonial condition or leaving it? Pardon, or? Or leaving it. So transforming or, or leaving it. Fatu, where are you joining us from? Um, from Senegal. That's where I am right now. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. That's everywhere. Where is it? It's, it? Social transformation. It will be revolutionary change. It will be incremental change. Everything together. 
I don't think it is anything in particular. I mean, whatever is particular is certainly you can see as it develops, whether in uh, Latin American countries or in some countries of Asia, maybe in other countries. Uh, there were national liberation movements in some of the countries. The national liberation movements led to uh, national you know, revolutions, led to strong states, led to many developments and much improvements of the society. There are many others where uh, it could not lead to, let's say, liberal democracy, but took on different types. There are again others, let's say, in Latin America, where uh, uh, several left populist governments have come up and they are all being experimented. That's not the final kind of word of, uh, you know, the jury is still out. So, but it's not something, anything which is out of the world. Everywhere people are, you know, trying to get out of this, not escape, but break the post-colonial uh, statement because there is the question of development, question of food security of millions of people, uh, question of uh, political rights, question of treating society as a commons for the people. And how do you therefore have a state which will be responsive to the uh, to the desires and the cravings of the toiling people? That's it, the, 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 the same question. So the post-colonial condition is something which is uh, which calls for social transformation. Thank you. Uh, Nadia, if you want to pose your question. Yes, thank you so much. Professor, I was very intrigued by your um, statement that post-colonialism or understanding post-colonialism is very important for a proper and profound understanding of globalization or globalized neoliberalism. So my question is actually might be quite trivial, but what would you say are the most important um, conditions within the post-colonial um, space that paved the way for um, neoliberal exploitation, specifically, maybe ideological reasons, but also economic reasons, perhaps? Yes, I have the material, you know, thing much more in mind, and which you know, any Marxist would try to uh, give primacy to. Uh, there are three, four things. One I have already mentioned that the development of capitalism from liberalism to neoliberalism, uh, which coincides or, or which actually is triggered off by globalization, is something that happens on the basis of the renewal of primitive accumulations in many parts of the world. So opening up mines, opening up natural resources, what you call extractive capitalism, deploying labor through most primitive means, uh, dragging in a large millions of peasants who were otherwise self-cultivating uh, individuals of society, into the wage market, at the same time distorting or deforming the wage market from the standard contract basis and showing to the world that a contract-based wage, free contract is only something that you find in fiction. You had a free contract, but the free contract was, is an exceptional period in 
history of capitalism. But up to the middle of the 19th century, to now today, this whole term precariat, as it tells you, that to be a wage worker, you have to live precariously. That labor laws, that wage laws, that all those things will not be fixed one for all. And that you will be, when you are a wage earner, your political identity is that of a rights-bearing subject. You are a citizen. But it is the post-colonial condition which tells you that you will be a worker, but you may not be a citizen. You will be a migrant, let us say forever. You may be a migrant, but you are not a legal migrant. You will be an illegal migrant who is continuously doing labor. You will be a labor, but this labor is more and more employed in quote and unquote, what we popularly call the unorganized sectors of industry. But there is a very fascinating book by someone I'm forgetting, Ned Rossiter. And the name of the book is, if I'm not wrong, uh, Logistics, Infrastructure, Labor, or it could be Routledge published it. I may be wrong in that. And there is a chapter in that book, which is titled possibly as Imperial Infrastructure. And it discusses the development of imperial infrastructure from 1850s to 1890s. In my own book also, I deal with these questions, but I have learned quite a lot from Ned's work. Uh, that imperialism or, or classic colonialism was impossible unless you take into account what Marx said in those days, the construction of railway lines, let us say, the telegraph wires. In fact, Marx's writings on Indian history, these essays on Indian history, which he wrote in uh, International uh, Tribune, is at times a parallel read that you have to continuously read when you are reading capitals. There in capital, you are reading, let us say, his expositions on political economy, interspersed with history. But there is a logic that continuously drives. So Balibar actually tells of capital as a theoretical machine. So it has a logic which continuously works remorselessly towards its final argument, till, of course, you reach the last part when it actually hammers you, shocks you, and takes you back to the time when capitalism begins and says, look, all those laws mean nothing unless you know how it came into the world. And then in order to understand this, this whole question of history and laws of economy, continuously wrestling with each other. And Marxism is neither a treatise of pure laws of economy, nor Marx is a pure historian. That these two, how would you put it, these two domains or our provinces or, or continents of our thinking in Althusser's language, they wrestle with each other. And therefore, reading capital, I mean, if we borrow that phrase of the famous book of Althusser and Balibar and others, with reading Marx, his notes on Indian history, reading Engels, on revolution and counter-revolution in Germany. Again, reading Marx's writings on China, uh, reading Marx's writings again in his late years when he again starts and these ethnological notebooks in the form of which it has come out. So in short, what I'm trying to tell is that no age of globalization was possible without the colonial ingredient. The colonial gradient was crucial. Without colonialism, there was no globalization. Similarly, there is no neoliberalism without the post-colonial thing. How could, again, the credit and date market would have expanded? How would it have expanded if you don't take into account 
let's say, the big banks uh, based in Singapore or, or India. How would you think of capitalism today if you don't think of the big rental outlets of territory like Dubai or, or the Middle Eastern countries or Macau or for that matter, Hong Kong, etc. How do you think of digital capitalism until unless you have really the logistical centers into account? So think of port expansion again. Again, you will see it is the post-colonial world which is taking the lead without capitalism. Engaging seriously with the post-colonial world, neoliberalism would not have come. Because neoliberalism inherits much of the post-colonial element in terms of disorganizing labor, in terms of irregularizing labor, in terms of uh, uh, restarting the processes of primitive accumulation, in terms of uh, uh, you know, gig economy, different kinds of platform economic uh, managements, you will see without post-colonial form of labor, without post-colonial ways of capital accumulation, global capitalism doesn't function. Period. Without this, so there is, in fact, Arivis, I don't know whether it was the last book before he died, Adam Smith in Beijing. Again, I may be wrong in you know, quoting the book. There was a subtitle, I think, something like, but the, the book was called Adam Smith in Beijing, where he says that we have to revisit Adam Smith and we have to again reread how Marx actually dealt with Smith. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. Uh, Kanishka, I believe you have a question. Uh, thank you. Namaskar, Dr. Shamadar. Ashakori Apni Bhalachan. I have a quick question. Um, I had a, actually a different question, but listening to you talk about all these different issues of migration and labor uh, has made me ask a different question. You talked about the chapter on primitive accumulation uh, and keep going back to it, but I keep going back to chapter 25 as well, which is the general law of capital accumulation. And I can't help thinking that Marx's theories of surplus population are, have become it's so relevant now when someone like Thomas Friedman talks about building a, a, a tall wall with a large gate, uh, that, that the sort of illegalization of labor through, you know, necessary to what's happening in terms of capital that we will have. There's nothing wrong in having quote unquote illegal labor as long as they work for you and produce surplus value. And so the whole politics of mobility um, really it really helps me to understand that when I go back and reread chapter 25. So my question to you was, is that chapter in terms of how Marx talks about the surplus population and how um, the surplus is managed and increased and regulated according to the needs of labor, does that chapter still hold the, the kind of place for you uh, that perhaps a lot of people have said, well, Marx is talking primarily about a specific moment in industrial uh, uh, England, and he's not talking about race and et cetera, et cetera. And nowadays, you know, whole mobility of migration is termed and addressed in terms of racial capitalism and, and ideas like that. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the significance of that chapter in, in terms of how we, how we understand current politics of migration. You are absolutely right. I have uh, not only no difference with you, 
but I think uh, you give me the occasion to bring another aspect which reinforces the main point that I'm making. You see, again, migration, when it was being dealt by, you know, Marxists, in the, as I said, in the conventional manner, it was always seen from the angle of labor mobility. And labor mobility dictated by capital's need. And unfortunately, the ghost that Marx was wrestling with, the ghost of Malthus, completely went off the rabbit. So you will not see, therefore, many Marxist writings, not many Marxist writings, where Malthus is given the importance that he had in the development of Marx's views through the book. And we have to also remember that Marx wrote theories of surplus value before, in some sense, he wrote Capital Volume 1. And certainly, Capital Volume 1 was published. Theories of surplus value were not much more. And in theories of surplus value, Marx is in fact clear. But I think capital also establishes the point that the way in which Malthus approaches the question of population is something, there is something wrong in it. And Marx, not without reason, uh, in fact, uh, said that in many ways that Malthus was the more dangerous enemy than uh, Ricardo. In fact, he had very bad words for Ricardo in, in theories of surplus. Now, the, the trouble with Malthus was that, and, and I, I come to your point, uh, deliberately invoking Malthus, because precisely today is the question of new Malthusian, the way in which the population question is addressed. That Malthus was one who partially succeeded in estranging uh, uh, separating the population question and the labor question. And, Mar and Malthus was arguing, as we all know, that labor need not necessarily be, quote and unquote, productive. And therefore, Malthus was arguing in terms of labor, which is not employed in productive purposes, etc., etc. And we all know what Malthus are. And in order to Marx, and in order for, uh, to wrestle with Malthus, who had brought in the population question as a very cardinal question in discussing society, labor, production, that Marx, and we all know what Marx argued, that the population question is something which is conditional, which is predicated on the way in which the economy is organized. And we all know his, uh, you know, his views on relative surplus, reserve army of labor, etc. And therefore, not without reason, it is through Malthus, through the struggle with Malthus, through the critique of Malthus, that Marx reaches the point of primitive accumulation. And I, I, I will later on, if you're interested, uh, you know, uh, uh, I published something. We had a book called 
the whole, you know, a book on post-colonial capitalism, so I can send you the, uh, you know, the link and all that, where I argue in details how the Malthus question becomes very important for Marx and later on Marxists, certainly those who dealt with the population question and not reduce population question to labor question. Marx didn't reduce population question to labor question. But Marx actually showed that how the population question depended, the destiny or the fate of population question depended on the way in which labor and labor power, labor productivity, all these are being organized. The point is, and where I found your question absolutely relevant, is that why is it important to do? One, is of course the whole question, is there a global reserve army of labor? And in my book, I try to show that there is. Second, why is it that from Africa Millennium Fund, uh, sorry, Millennium Development Goals, Africa Fund, many other initiatives that uh, the developed world or Western capitalism has taken, how that is contingent on this single purpose of making everyone productive. And that is where neoliberalism becomes crucial that the approach of liberalism would be that, well, some section of population may not be productive. So what do you do with them? You don't kill them. You either allow them to go away. You can keep them in, in uh, you know, prison islands, etc., etc., or you can give them welfare benefits, unemployment insurance. Uh, and in my book, in fact, I discuss a lot about the origins of uh, the beverage plan, etc. But neoliberalism doesn't say so. Neoliberalism says, even if you are a physically challenged person, but you are of value to market. So you must be given productive tools so that you can access the market. The last person in society, ideally, should be a market-enabled actor. How do you do that? Therefore, you want to do away with the whole question of a reserve army of labor and idle labor, because through the credit and date game, through the plasticity of your money, and be precisely because money capital and finance capital, credit capital, they become much more important than industrial capital. The point about whether you are productively engaged in accumulation becomes redundant or is thought to be made redundant by neoliberal capitalism. And that is where you find a new kind of neo-Malthusianism and which is where I think that, I mean, if you take to this pandemic and this whole idea of, uh, hard immunity. Now, it is only by killing a certain number of people that you make a certain number of people safe in the world. That is precisely what hard immunity would be all about. So you have at the end of the day, the Malthusian logic in capitalism, that in order to make certain workers productive, you have to declare or treat certain group of people redundant where Marx, I think, brought in the question of, therefore, again, going back to colonies and everything, all that we discussed today, is squarely placing it in the dynamics of capitalism itself, that it is not something which is happening outside capitalism. And capitalism is the world of production, whereas idle population is the, they inhabit the world which is outside capitalism. That's not the case. This is within capitalism, that the dynamics move. So the question of Malthusianism and new Malthusianism as integral to capitalism's functioning is extremely important. In fact, the more you see environmental debates and the more you see the debates around pandemic, 
the whole visibility debates everywhere where debates about how you make your today's knowledge production much more productive and therefore different kinds of educational reforms throughout the world you can see that making everyone productive how this becomes very crucial for capitalism to escape the malthusian blues which of course is not possible thank you so much professor i we do have to wrap up now we are at the hour um very quickly i'd like to ask um our last two people on our queue, Victor Wallace and uh, my co-producer Rachel Patton, to yeah, it's just Rachel Patton, to uh, just quickly maybe frame their questions. So maybe you could give some parting thoughts. Okay, uh, I'm very quickly. Uh, yes, it goes back to a basic thing uh, that I've always wondered about, just the term post-colonial, and to some extent, uh, listening to your argument. Uh, I feel it, it reinforces my impression that post-colonial differs only superficially from colonial. So uh, I come back to the sense, I, I, I view the system as one of imperialism, which you say can go through different phases, but what is post about it? <laughs> so should Thank I take the other question together and then- Yep, Rachel. Sure. Um, thank you so much for being with us. Um, so in your book, you have a really interesting discussion about dual power and its role. And I'm wondering what we can learn from historical efforts to build dual power. I must confess that I was waiting for the last question because this is my, if for me, the most favorite chapter. But, uh, you know, so thank you. But on the post-colonial question, I think, uh, I mean, you, we cannot say that it's simply colonialism because it's not. And it's not a question of uh, territorial annexation, occupation, which is there, but it is also a question of how capitalism has developed on the other hand, what political independence means for the once colonized people. And uh, the entire anti-colonial revolutions throughout the world uh, we just cannot say it didn't happen or it didn't mean anything. The fact that I'm sitting here and discussing these things that I can organize, but not only that, there are many other things uh, uh, that uh, independence and the end of colonialism uh, signify, signal. Uh, at the same time, communists, particularly of Asia and Africa, they, we spoke of uh, neocolonialism. And again, that's a very relevant term. So as I said, that post-colonialism is, is something it gestures towards, which one understands, but it should be, the, uh, the, the idea should be, you know, uh, uh, dismembered and seen, and we have to see what are the components that go into making this term post-colonialism. Uh, on the question of dual power, uh, thank you very much. Uh, since it's the last question, so I will just take a minute or two, so I can't explain that. But I think what I wanted to say is that in the history of revolutions, uh, even in, in Marx's writings, the three famous writings on uh, France, but again, uh, my favorite thing is revolution and counter-revolution in Germany. 
Marx and from Marx onwards, but certainly with from Lenin and Mao, the idea of a counterpower, the idea of a bourgeois society which is continuously producing revolutionary opposition is something that, uh, you know, that comes out. Uh, so therefore, you find Marx's writings on Paris Commune, for example, speaking of the Commune in Paris and the government in Versailles, or you know, there are other writings. Uh, but in Lenin, it becomes very clear, drawing his lessons from writings on commune, but certainly much more, you know, drawing lessons from the 1905 uh, Russian Revolution, the way in which Soviets sprang up. But you think of, uh, you know, if you go to Mao, you find another quantum leap in thinking where Mao actually says, what makes red power in China possible? You can see so much concrete thinking. It's a, it's a different matter whether his analysis was right, etc. And he lays out the conditions as if you were reading uh, and letters from afar, which are you know written by Lenin, April letters, as if being written under the, in the Chinese condition by a Chinese. And precisely there. So, what are the conditions that make red power possible in China? And what I thought was that under the onslaught of what has been termed as revisionism, Euro-Marxism or Euro-Communism, certainly the welfare phase of Marxism, and this idea that parliament will slowly allow all of us to reach our desired goal of a communist society, that we forgot that people struggle by producing counterpower. Even when counterpower has been produced, the challenge is how do you retain the counterpower? The, the specific form of counterpower may not be, uh, you know, durable. I mean, if you think of Syriza uh, uh, in Greece, uh, you could see that it was, uh, it was not durable, it didn't last long. One of the reasons, again, being that while they understood that yet it was a power which was opposed to, let's say, European financial power, etc., etc., but they didn't see it in the long run that how do they preserve it? I don't want to go into a critique of Syriza. But all I'm saying is that dual power is the essential question of revolution. And the more you study post-colonial condition, you can see that national advance along the path of liberation, independence, progress, revolution, call it national revolution, etc., cannot be theorized unless you integrate in it the question of dual. After all, what the nation is. In a way, therefore, subaltern studies people where people were right when they said, uh, I'm thinking of Partha Chatterjee's, for example, nation and uh, uh, what's that? Uh, nationalist thought and the colonial world, I may be wrong again in Putin, where he was saying that, uh, that uh, the uh, nationalist, early nationalist thought that the West had material power, but India had cultural power. Now, I'm not saying that the analysis was right, but the fact is that the idea of the nation advanced precisely by putting it as against the empire, as against the colony, in much the same way in which you think that the idea of the proletariat, the idea of workers' power, is posited against the idea of the bourgeois power. So, the question of dual power is at the heart of the question of social transformation. 
there is no gradual social transformation. There is no way in which suddenly people of the world or of a country suddenly make revolution unless they are also erecting power that will then serve their purpose in terms of dislodging or overthrowing uh, the, the power of the people. So that's in short, but as I said, the nation question is itself the question of a parallel. But in India, the nation question itself is thought to be incorporated in the neoliberal and extremely reactionary discourse. So again, you have the challenge, what do you posit against the national Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for coming today. I'd first like to actually thank uh, Professor Samadar, thank you uh, for joining us today and showing in your work and, and just talking to us how theory must keep its eye on the political prize. It was such a great opportunity to speak with you today. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, my co-host Paula Rahala uh, for coming in and joining us to, to facilitate this conversation. Um, and. Uh, also, thank you to all the co to my co-producer, uh, Rachel Yarashir's Patton, for who has been uh, doing a lot of the tech and admitting us today, as well as managing the Q and A um, for all their hard work, and also the entire social shelter and solidarity production team: Linda Liu, uh, Seren Mudliar, Mark Soderstrom, Joe Ramsey, and Tim Sheard. SNS holds a bi-monthly uh, Thursday evening show, and you can find out more about it at our website, shelterandsolidarity.com. Our next Thursday show is the is this upcoming Thursday on the 13th. Um, I'd finally like to thank our co-sponsors, the Community Church of Boston, Encuentro Cinco, Hardball Press, Social and Socialism and Democracy, and the Liberty Tree Foundation. Thank you everyone for joining us for this hour and have a great weekend.